you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information visit commongroundcma.org. chunk of, uh, of scripture today, several chunks actually, most of it in Luke chapter 9, I think it's in the bulletin so you can look there and turn ahead if you'd like, the first one is Matthew uh, 20 and then and then Luke 9 attached to that, uh, I want to start off with a question, I don't, you don't have to answer this question, okay, because it, it might just be a little bit depressing if we did spend time answering this question, but has somebody ever let you down? So devastatingly hard that you were kind of done with them. Has that ever happened to you? Okay. Or let me flip the question around this way: Have you ever let somebody down so devastatingly hard that they were done with you? Because you see, that's the human condition. We fall short. Uh, we are broken. Uh, we are sinful. We are separated from God apart from Christ, without Christ. And uh, and that's not a good place to be because when we function in that capacity, we do not function well. And the result is usually someone has let us down or we have let somebody else down. And it is actually something that can sever a relationship. And we were created for relationships. God is a relational God and he created us in his image to reflect him. And, and he invited us into the relationship with the Holy Trinity that has always existed forever and ever and ever. You know, and they, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, they could have been fine just by themselves, but they said, let's, let us create man in our image. And male and female, he created them so that we would have a relationship with one another and relate with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like we've been invited to this great cosmic eternal dance. But yet we do things that break relationships. So there's a third question. Have you ever felt like maybe perhaps by something you did or didn't do, you let God down devastatingly hard? When that happens, that can really rock our spiritual walk. Our series that we've been working through in in the autumn months here has been rekindled, and it's taking a look at... Um, at what do we do when we kind of feel like we've uh, fallen off track, so to speak, with God? What do we do when our spiritual life seems to have grown dull? Um, what do we do, perhaps in the case where we feel distance with God, and, and maybe it's because of something in our, in our own life that has caused that? Um, that's what we want to address today as we look at these scriptures. So uh, why don't we just jump right into it, uh, and we're going to go to the first one in Matthew chapter 20. Now, the, the, the people I'm looking at today in these scriptures are a couple of my favorite guys uh, in the Bible, James and John, the son of Zebedee. Okay, James and John were uh, business partners with Simon and Andrew. They had a fishing business. Uh, their dad, Zebedee, basically ran his branch of the fishing business and was probably preparing them to take over the business when this carpenter from Nazareth comes along and says, Hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
And we're told in the scriptures and the gospels that James and John left their nets with their father in the boat and went and followed Jesus. I can tell you what my dad would have said if I would have jumped, bailed on the family business just like that. Um, and this might be where they got their nickname. Jesus gave these, these two boys a nickname, Sons of Thunder. <laughs> so I, you know, we don't know where that nickname came from, why Jesus chose that, but it's always been my imagination that Zebedee was doing a little thundering in the boat uh, as they walked away to go follow this, this, this rabbi who nobody really knew that much about at that time. So um, they start off, at least they're introduced to us as sons of thunder in, in the gospel stories. But as we look at these, these various scriptures today, we're going to see that they also could have been called sons of blunder, like we all can. Uh, we might thunder some days, but we blunder most days. And, and that's kind of what I want to look at. Matthew chapter 20, verse, uh, beginning with verse 20, we have this. It says that the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, Okay, what a picture here. Here comes mom, you know, the Jewish mom, you know, got her two boys along, along with her, who approaches Jesus. She knelt down before him uh, and she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Okay. That's a Jewish mom's request. That's usually most mom's request. They want their kids to be successful. They want them to be in the best place that they could be. And Mrs. Zebedee, whatever her name is, um, you know, Mrs. Thunder, uh, she comes up and she says, "I, Jesus, I would like you to appoint my two sons as as the next highest in your kingdom, okay, as the viceroys of your kingdom." It says that Jesus answered and says, "You do not know what you are asking." Uh, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And he said this to the boys, okay, to James and John. You know, do you think you can do this? Do you think you can can follow me into what I have to do in order to gain this kingdom? And and they said, without even really knowing what they were saying, yeah, we can do that. We are able. We are able. You know, how many times have we told God something like that? That yeah, I can do that, and then we don't. You know, uh, yeah, God, I'm here for you, and, and we're really not, sort of thing. Well, this this incident, and it's not the only time that this sort of thing happened amongst the disciples, amongst the twelve apostles in particular. Uh, as we go down, to, if you turn over to Luke chapter nine, and we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke chapter nine here, or most of our time, not a lot of time. Um, it says that an argument arose among them as to who was the greatest. You see, these guys were always looking for position. They were always looking to advance themselves one way or another. Not just James and John, but all of them in some way were doing that. And again, that's a very human tendency that we all have. We we, we want to be uh, in a place of position or power. We want prestige. We want to be recognized. Uh, we want all the things that we lost when the fall happened. But we want to replace it in our own way, and we want to replace it with what the world has for options. So it says in in verse 46 of Luke chapter 9, an argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. 
Um, we might even go back to Matthew chapter 20 and, and part of the fallout of James and John's mom coming to Jesus in that fashion, making that request that she made, said that the, that the 12 or the remaining of the 12 grew indignant with them. So there's always kind of this little infighting amongst Jesus' crew because of this thing happening. So now they're arguing again about who, which of them was the, you know, the best apostle. Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put them by, put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So, you know, Jesus just turns everything on its head right there and says, you want to be great, become the least. You want to increase, you've got to decrease. You, you want people to be proud of you, you've got to be humble. Uh, you, want to, you want to be a master, you've got to be a servant. <laughs> he says, just become like one of these, these children. And children in that day, in that culture, were despised. They were treated as property. You know, it's not like Jesus was setting up the poster child for Gerber or something. And we all go, oh, isn't that wonderful? Because, you know, we're a different culture, you know. But back then, babies and children, they, they weren't really treasured like we treasure them now. And Jesus says, just become like one of these. So what we see in this is that these guys blundered a little bit because they were a long ways off on their perception of who they really were. And again, that's, that's, that's something that we all do as human beings. We can, we, we can be way off the mark on perceiving ourselves as we really ought to be perceived. And part of what Jesus does is to help us refocus and help us get the right perspective of who we really are. But then we move on in Luke chapter 9, just boom, right into the next verse, verses 49 through 50. John, son of thunder, says this, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. You see what he just did there? This is the first interdenominational fight. Okay? It's been going on all the way back to John. Another disciple, he wasn't one of the twelve, he, he wasn't following with them, but yet he was a disciple of Jesus, claiming the name of Christ to himself, and he was actually out serving. He was actually out doing something. He was this wild card maverick guy, just going, well, you know what, I see something needs to be done, I'm going to go do it. I'm not going to wait for some kind of approval from a board or something. I, I just, Jesus wants me to serve, so I'll serve. He told us we could do this, so I'm going to do it. He goes out and he starts casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John goes, wait a minute, you don't have approval of that. We've not had a board meeting and come to a consensus as to this kind of activity being actually ordained. Now, isn't it funny how we do stuff like that, you know? Uh, wait a minute, what are you doing out there? That's, who gave you the okay to do that? Oh, I'm just following Jesus. Okay. And we're actually doing what John did there. Who gave you the okay to follow Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> and, and so he's going, we tried to stop him because he's not with us. And it says, Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. And it's just Jesus being, what are you doing? He's on your side. 
You know, I, I often wondered if Jesus just had little brain checks where he almost said, you moron. <laughs> but he wouldn't do that. But he rebuked them sharply. And you're going to see that. And each time, it's, he basically was rebuking them. Be like a child. Stop stopping people. If they're doing it in my name, let them do it. And in, 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 in again, how quick are we to judge another denomination or another church because they do something that way, but we don't do it this way? Jesus says, stop that. Just stop it. You're on the same side. So here we see this son of blunder is a long way off on his perspective of other disciples. Which again is something that we're able to do so easily because we're broken in relationships. We actually create separation rather than unity. What's the one thing that Jesus prayed for really, really hard in the Garden of Gethsemane? Please take this cup away from me. But if not, let thy will be done. Yeah, that's one of the things he prayed for. Read John chapter 17. The high priestly prayer is what we call that. And that was Jesus' prayer the night before he was crucified. And it was basically this, that we would be one as he and his father are one. He prayed that we would be unified so that the world would know that he was sent to be the savior of that world. He prayed hard for us not to divide against one another, but to come together. But you see, we blunder so often, just like John or James might have. We keep rolling on. We get into verse 51. Oh, this is a good one. So you know the Jews and the Samaritans, they did not get along. All right? Yeah, we could do that. We could probably think of groups that we don't interact with well. You know, that we say, well, okay, you just go over there and we're just going to go over here. You do your thing. We're going to do our thing. But man, they just hated each other. They just did not like each other at all. If you were a Jew and you walked into Samaritan territory, they'd want to boot you out and vice versa. All right. So it comes to the time Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem. By the way, all these blunders are happening right on the heels of Jesus sitting down with his disciples and saying, I got to tell you something. Black and white, here it is, straight from the horse's mouth. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to go get killed. Okay? He, he just announced how he was going to die and everything. And they're doing all this stuff. Instead of going, wow, Jesus, what do we do? How do we walk with you in this? I mean, what, what should we expect? You know, instead of doing that, they're getting all wrapped up in all these other things. So he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. He's going to carry out the mission that he was sent to do. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now we have to understand something there. They weren't rejecting Jesus because he said he was the Messiah at this point. They were rejecting him because he was a Jew with his face set towards Jerusalem because Samaritans didn't worship at Jerusalem and they thought the Jews were off their rocker for doing that. So that's the main thing. They just saw this guy that was a Jew heading towards Jerusalem. They said, look, no, we don't want you coming through our territory. And Jesus understood that. He understood that they were rejecting him for that reason and not because he was claiming to be the Messiah. But the, but John and James, verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, and listen to this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I guess you would call this an Elijah 
crisis here? <laughs> That's what Elijah did. So if Elijah could do that, then maybe we can do that. And you know, and, and here they are. Again, they've got this false perception of who they are, and they think that, that, that this is actually what Jesus wants them to do, and they think that they have the capability of doing it. They got all offended, like we don't. <laughs> they got all offended about how they treated Jesus, and their response was, let's nuke them. (laughs) Don't we do that? Don't we get so easily offended? And our response is, God, just wipe them off the face of the earth. They don't deserve to live. It's easier to do that than to go and make disciples out of them. But that's what we're told to do. Go and make disciples. But but these sons of blunder, their first initial reaction was is, yeah, that's no way to that's no way to respond to Jesus. We're done with you. We're just done with you. We're as done as you can possibly be done. But then it says in verse fifty five, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. It doesn't say what he said. I'd like to know what he said. I think it was strong. I think what they said was pretty strong, so I think Jesus matched the strength of the of, of the words there. But all we know is that they rebuked them and they just went on to another village. Jesus says, nope, we'll just, we'll just move on. Now that's turning the other cheek. That's, that's something he taught us to do. He says, no, we're not going to just pause here and, and get caught in this. We'll, we'll just move on. And then we jump back to Matthew. Uh, you don't have to go there because it's just a very short statement. Matthew 26, verse 56, the second half of the, of the verse. It was when Jesus was being arrested. He's made it to Jerusalem. He circumvented that Samaritan village that didn't want him to visit. And he's eventually made it to Jerusalem. Uh, it's, the time has come now for him to, to be taken up. And uh, Jesus is out praying with all of his disciples. We probably could have included that, included that as another blunder. Because he says, hey, stay here and pray with me. And they all went to sleep. Yeah. Um, they all claimed, we will not forsake you. We will not desert you. We'll stick, we'll stick with you to the end. Peter was the ringleader of that. You know, I, Even if I have to die, I'll be, I'll be at your side, Jesus. And uh, in, in Matthew 25, or I'm sorry, verse, or chapter 26, uh, verse 56, the last, last half of that verse, it, it tells us this, and this is one of the, the saddest things in all of the Gospels. Uh, when Jesus was arrested, it says that all the disciples left him and fled. Did you catch that? All of the disciples left him. And fled. He was absolutely, completely, totally abandoned by these guys that had been walking with him for three and a half years. Uh, the, the dust that Jesus stirred up as he walked fell on these guys. And, and that's the way rabbis and students, that's the, they, they wanted, a student of a rabbi wanted his rabbi's dust on him. They wanted to say, I was the closest to follow you. But here they're leaving Jesus in the dust. After they said all those things, we would never forsake you. We would never desert you. We would never abandon you. One of them, we believe, John Mark, uh, fled naked because somebody got a hold of his robe. And uh, he, he would rather expose himself to that shame than to stick with Jesus. And it says all of them. That means the sons of thunder ran for their lives. 
like I said, I think this is probably the saddest thing. And the reason I say it's the saddest thing is because I probably would have too. You know, it's easy for us to sit back and be the uh, the armchair disciples or apostles, but more than likely, we probably would have done the same thing. Because fear is a powerful thing, and fear can make even the best of people do the worst of things. I know that Peter wept bitterly over that incident. Um, we don't know exactly how James, John, Thomas, Alphaeus, and, or, or, and, and Matthew, and, and all the rest of them, how, how they might have reacted, but i, I got to imagine that that once they fled, they probably they probably felt this big. You know, they, they probably could say, "Hey, you don't have to open the door for us. We'll just slither right underneath." It's probably the worst day of their lives in following Jesus Christ. It was probably a time when John and James might have felt like we have just let Jesus down so devastatingly hard that we've probably broken this relationship forever. I, I got to think that it was it was that that compelled John to at least follow at a safe distance, you know, to at least go to where the trial was being held at the high priest's house, to use his influences of knowing somebody in that house to be able to get in there, but but still just kind of keep his distance a little bit. And you see, that's I think where the problem is: is, is Jesus says, "Follow me," and we say, "Okay, I will follow you." And when we're supposed to be as close to Him as we can get, so that the dust that He kicks up settles on us, we're we're following at a safe distance. So, as I've often said in this this idea of this rekindled series, I think there's something that God wants to burn out of us, but at the same time, I think there's something He wants to burn into us. And I think the thing that he wanted to burn out of the sons of blunder was this this sense of distancing. And I think it's the same thing that he would like to burn out of me too, where I where I keep this safe distance from God. Or maybe I've had the wrong perspective of myself. Or maybe it's the way I've treated um, uh, other people who are following him. Or maybe it's my attitude towards the outsiders that I've created this distance between me and God. And God says, man, I would love nothing more than to just burn that away. And as he burns that out, I think the, the, the thing that God desires to burn into us is this sense of closing the distance. Closing that distance. But it's real easy for us to say, well, how can I do that? How, how can I draw nearer to God when I look at some of the things I've done in my life? when I consider some of the things that I've actually thought in my head, when I recount some of the careless words that have actually fallen off of my lips, why, why would God want me to close that distance? I, I would think that he would say, just step back. That's our human tendency. Again, because we've let people down or someone's let us down, we tend to push back or push away. And so we picture a God who does the same thing. We are all supposed to be joining God in his mission to make his name known to this world, but I would probably suspect that many of us keep a safe distance from that mission because we think, I don't think God really means me when he says, I want all of you to join me in this. I think he means that for other people. I think it would be real easy for James and John to think, this is it. Jesus, if Jesus is going to do anything from this point on, it's, it's going to be without us. 
Because how many times have we failed and how many times have we fallen short? And isn't it easy to do that? Isn't it easy to stand before God and just think of all the failures of walking with Him? Again, I think God is a God that wants to burn that idea out of us and burn into us that there's a way to draw near. So we've talked about John, the son of thunder, and his brother, James, the sons of blunder. Um, I want to close with the idea of being a son or daughter of wonder. And to do that, we've got to go to John chapter 19. Because this is the day of Jesus' death. This is the day of Him hanging on a tree. Isn't that an ironic thing that Jesus became a carpenter? And ended up hanging on a wooden tree. Isn't it ironic that Jesus was the creator of trees? That he knew when he was creating trees, he was creating one to die on for us. And he's carrying out that mission. We know that crucifixion is probably the most painful way that men have come up with to execute other men. It's excruciating. You basically... Uh, spent several days suffocating under your own body weight, unable to breathe because uh, the only way you can take a breath is by putting weight down on the nails. So in order for Jesus to draw a breath, he had to bear down on those nails for an instant just to, just to gasp in some air. And he is in the midst of that. And we're told in John chapter 19, beginning with verse 26, that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary, Mary, and Mary. And now I want you to look very closely at verse uh, 26. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he wasn't talking about himself. He wasn't saying, Mom, look at me up here on the tree. He looked at her and he glanced over at the disciple whom he loved, who is John, the son of Zebedee, John, the son of thunder, John, the son of blunder, who somehow, since he ran away from Jesus, managed to get as close to Jesus as he could at the cross. I don't know if he snuck in or or what it looked like, but at some point he just decided, I'm I'm done maintaining this safe distance from Jesus. i got to get there. i got to get as close as I possibly can to him. And believe me, when when your son's being crucified in front of you, nobody's going to get past you as the mom. You're going to be the closest one to the cross. So John did his best, and he, he got up beside Mary. And I I can't help but imagine that maybe as he drew up beside her, he he drew her into him to give her whatever comfort he could while she watched her son die. And Jesus looked down and he saw that. And I don't know, but I cannot help but think that maybe, just maybe in that instant, for the first time ever in all of the crucifixions that that the Romans ever carried out, a crucified man smiled. As he saw his mom and this disciple whom he loved so much. 
And he said, Woman, behold your son, referring to John. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You see, what just happened there in the midst of this ugly, horrible, painful execution, Jesus took care of some business. Because as the firstborn and the oldest, and more than likely the head of the household, now that Joseph was no longer in the picture, um, he had to make sure that Mary was taken care of. Because you see, there were no welfare programs. The government didn't come in and and, and help out the widow in, in that case. It was the son's job to make sure that she was protected and she was provided for. And when he looked down, he saw John, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder, the son of blunder, be a son of wonder. And he said, Mom, that's now your son. John, from this point forward, she is your mother. And John, from that point forward, took her into his own home and cared for her. Talk about doing a favor for a dying man. Do you sense a distance between you and God? It usually begins with a mistaken perception of ourselves. Um, And and it can affect the way we treat others, both those that we we call brother and sister in the church or, or those who are outside of the faith. And that misperception can go so far as to make us wonder if, if perhaps uh, we and God are even on the same team anymore. And if you sense that, I hope you're hearing uh, what I'm saying and I hope you saw what the scriptures just bore out for us. Um, if we have that misperception of ourselves, well, how do we correct that faulty vision? What's, what's going to change that for us? And I'm going to propose this. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But the cross. We cannot redefine ourselves. We can't refine ourselves. We can't wander about the the earth until we find ourselves. There's no self-help books. There's no gurus. There's no diets. There's no exercise program. No gym that's going to fix us. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that is going to close the distance between us and God except the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ on a cross is the only remedy for our wayward, blunderous condition. That's how our relationship with God begins. If we do not trust Jesus Christ, we are eternally lost. We are eternally separated from God. We are eternally bound for wrath. The worst place, the worst condition that anybody could ever be in. And Jesus closed the distance by leaving his throne in heaven and coming down here to walk amongst us. But not just to walk amongst us to show us what God looks like, but to pay the penalty that we can never pay by going to the cross. He closed that distance. And then he said, come, come. 
And for those of, those of us who have been walking with Jesus, but maybe we've had a history of blunders and we think, well, you know, now, now I'm, I'm back here. Jesus still says the same thing. The thing that fixes us to begin with is the thing that constantly, constantly keeps us in a relationship with Him, and that's get back to the cross. Get as close to it as you possibly can get. And look up and say, I'm here. Here I am. What would you have me do? Wouldn't you like to have a crucified man smile at you? Say, I knew you'd come. Here's what I'll have you do. And I think you'll hear his voice clearer than you've ever heard it before. I know about you, but I want to live a life from this point on that thunders. I want to be able to have the capacity to to wipe away every one of my blunders. And I want to just know one thing. And that one thing is the greatest of all wonders. A God that loves us so much that in spite of our sins, in spite of our errors, in spite of our failures and our faults, that that He would give Himself up for us. And And not just so that we would have the capacity to trust Him, but so that he would be able to say to us what he said to John, basically, when he, when he said, take care of my mom from now on. I trust you. I trust you with my name. I trust you with my word. I trust you with the gospel. I trust you with the mission to take my, to take my name out to every corner of this world and to make disciples. To love one another in the same way that I've loved you. I trust you. The only way we'll hear those words is draw near. Draw near to the cross. In a moment, we're going to enter into uh, the celebration of communion. Matt's going to come up with the others and play some, some music for us. And while that music plays, you have the opportunity to do just that, to draw near because the communion represents the crucifixion, the body broken for us, the blood poured out for us. And, and maybe today is a day you need to say for the first time, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I've run from you all my life. Today I'm, today I'm giving you my life because you gave me yours. Today I, I drive this stake in the ground that says this is the day I trust Jesus for my salvation. And don't hesitate, I invite you to come. Or maybe, maybe it's just that need that says, uh, you know, God, I feel like there's been a distance between you and I lately. And, and I want to close that distance. I want to draw near. I want to come back to you. I, I want to, I want to know that grace again. That wonderful, immeasurable, Magnificent grace. Because that's all we got. That's all we got. So as you partake today, if you choose to do so, um, here at Common Ground, you don't have to be a member of the church or that sort of thing. We practice open communion, which means that uh, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, even if it were in this instant right now, uh, you're welcome to come and to remember... uh, 
the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. So I'll leave you to do that business as we pray and as Matt and the team comes up to, to lead us in another song. Take the time during the song to come as you will and uh, uh, partake of the cup and, and, and the bread. Father, we come before you um, in desperate need of your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that every single day you pour that grace out beyond measure. Um, when we count our blessings, that should be the first of the blessings that we ever count, is that you would give to us a gift that we can never deserve. And that is the gift of salvation through the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm a broken person. Um, I have more blunder than thunder in me many days. But God, I, I always wonder at the, the measure of your grace. Lord, today I need your grace just as much as I did when I first met you. And I'm sure I've got many friends and brothers and sisters here that could say the same. So Lord, thank you for spreading your arms open wide. And thank you that those nails didn't hold your arms down. Thank you for the resurrection that promises us arms to receive us nail-scarred hands to reach out to our own and a loving Messiah that as soon as we show up says I knew you'd come I knew you'd be here Lord find us here and may we forever be sons and daughters of your wonder we pray in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.